1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? I'm at Maplewood Flats in North Vancouver, and I'm looking for a purple marten. It's not really purple, and it's really a swallow, but it's a success story in these parts, recovering because the flats were rehabilitated in the 1990s as a conservation area. This is just one example of trying to claw back species sitting on the edge of extinction. And that's what we're looking at this week. The crisis for so many birds, animals, fish and plants is real and made worse by a warming planet. But one solution to saving old species may lie in embracing new technologies. Another can be seen right here. The flats are on the territory of the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation. We'll hear how Indigenous knowledge has allowed species diversity to flourish, where government-led management has sometimes failed. Two years ago, a startling report made headlines all over the world. It warned that a million plant and animal species are at risk of extinction. UBC professor Kai Chan studies how humans and ecosystems interact. And he was a lead author on the solutions chapter of that report. Hello. Hello. I want to start out with that report from two years ago. What did it pinpoint as the biggest causes of biodiversity loss around the world?
3: Those biggest causes were no surprise to us. The first of them was land use change and sea use change. So effectively the loss of habitat for these species. And then the second was overharvest, just taking too many of them. And then the third that will continue to grow in terms of its threat to species is, of course, climate change.
2: And tell me how climate change fits into it.
3: Climate change exacerbates everything else pretty much. It, It makes the risk of... Uh, nutrient changes, undermining ecosystems greater, it enhances the spread of invasive species and diseases, Um, it increases extreme weather events, which also causes stress to species, and it makes species have to move from their previous habitats to, to new ranges, which just causes an additional stress on those species that gets layered on top of everything else
2: Now, as I said, when the report came out, I remember so many headlines and warnings and and astonishment at what was reported. It's been two years. Has anything changed since then?
3: We have, in the intervening couple of years, seen an increase in rhetoric, at least, and also policy in terms of combating climate change. The problem is, however, that there are real ways in which a single-minded focus on climate change can undermine those other crucial elements of ecosystems that effectively provide life-supporting services for us.
2: But it does sound like what you're seeing is a lot of talk, but not enough action the way you want it to happen. So. Yeah,
3: it's, there are two big issues. One is talk and not action and the second is single-minded action in pursuit of solutions to individual problems rather than the kind of systemic solutions that we need that would address not just climate change but also the other environmental problems that are inextricably connected.
2: But it seemed like there was momentum at the time. What happened to it?
3: I don't know. <laughs> I felt like there was a real momentum that we you know that we couldn't possibly lose. But I think, honestly, COVID happened, and I think that that just took the wind out of the sails of the movement more broadly. But hasn't
2: the pandemic also reminded us about the importance of nature? Isn't that an important aspect?
3: It really is. And I'm hoping that that tangible connection to nature will will be convertible (laughs) into the kinds of actions that we have to take. And so what we really need to do is to spin out that awareness of how important our local nature is to protecting nature wherever it lies. You know, given that all of the products that we buy, the goods and services that we consume, they require extraction of resources from ecosystems all over the planet. We need to take responsibility for all of that.
2: I think it might be helpful for listeners to hear um, how you connect the dots, though, from what we consume to extinctions.
3: All those three drivers that I talked about, land use change and sea use change over harvest and then climate change, those are all directly a product of what we consume. So many of us imagine that the route to solving climate change is through an upscaling of renewable energy. But the truth is that it also must entail a reduction in the total amount of what we consume. And there's no way that we can keep up in terms of sustainable energy unless we downscale that total consumption.
2: How much more science and research do we need when it comes to, to keeping all of the critters, large and small around the world, safe from a warming climate?
3: We're gonna to continue to need research to better understand how we can mitigate the stresses that we've already caused to those systems and that are continuing to escalate. But at the broad brush levels, in terms of the big changes that we know we need to do in order to get on a sustainable trajectory, we know what we need to do. Yes, we could use more research, absolutely, but there is absolutely no justification to delay any longer.
2: What, what's the biggest thing you think we need to change if there isn't going to be a million species wiped out?
3: The central thing that we need to change is that we need to take on an identity of people as effectively heroes in this system. The kind of heroics that I'm talking about are not, they're not grand heroics, right? We're not talking about Superman flying out to outer space and then reversing the course to the earth. It's the kind of heroics where we stand up for the system that can continue lasting with humans and nature prospering. And I think that that's the single most important thing is for people to just sign up to be part of that change.
2: Chan, thank you very much for your time today.
3: Thank you so much for having me on the show.
2: If habitat loss is the biggest threat to survival for so many creatures, Then what's the answer? Producer Lisa Johnson is here with a story about how big data is helping scientists pinpoint exactly where protection is most needed and when. There are times in the Central Valley of California
4: when the sky is filled with what looks like clouds of birds. They're not just locals. This is part of a migratory route, like a bird superhighway connecting Patagonia with the Canadian Arctic.
0: Well, the Pacific Flyway is phenomenally important for migratory shorebirds and and waterbirds more generally.
4: That's Greg Gullett, a senior scientist with the Nature Conservancy in California.
0: But it's also been well documented how extensive the loss of habitat has been over time.
4: Look at a map of the Sacramento Valley. Huge swaths of it used to be wetlands before 1900. Today, more than 95% of that is gone. There are small pockets of protected areas, but they're in a sea of development in farmers' fields. In the winter, that's less of a problem. Many of the fields are rice, and the farmers flood them in the winter. It becomes a kind of surrogate wetlands that overwintering ducks and geese enjoy. But it's a different story in the months when shorebirds pass through.
0: So these are species that breed up in... Alaska or the Western Canadian Arctic, and some of them fly as far south as Patagonia in South America. And so they're moving through, and they just have their own timing that's worked for them for eons.
4: Shorebirds on the whole are in steep decline, and the missing wetlands are not helping. When you're out there
0: at these times of year, especially in the late summer, early fall, it is amazing how dry and barren the Central Valley landscape fields. And so there's so little wetland habitat for the birds, and yet they're coming
4: through. It's not an unfamiliar problem in conservation. The very places that nature depends on are also highly valuable for us, for homes, transportation, and growing food. Golette says there's not much opportunity to buy up land for the migrating birds. So instead, you could say they're renting it. The Nature Conservancy forecasts when the shorebirds will arrive thanks to near real-time data from some of the best list keepers of them all, birders. Then the group pays farmers to flood their fields a few weeks earlier or later on the bird schedule.
0: My name is Hans Herkert, and uh, I farm rice on our family farm here in uh, near Calusa, California, about an hour's drive north of the state capital of
4: Sacramento. All summer, Herkert is growing a medium-grain kind of rice used for sushi. In the fall, for the past six or seven years, he's participated in the program called Bird Returns and another run by the rice industry itself. His fields become shallow wetlands. On a drought year like this, it's both harder and more necessary.
0: You know, I would say that water has probably become the the trickiest part to farming in the state of California. We have uh, obviously a limited water supply. The survival of these bird species and other animals uh, depends on the water.
4: Farmers like him bid in a reverse auction saying what it will cost per acre. If they're chosen, the conservation money helps foot the bill for costs like running the pumps.
0: When they arrive here, the habitat is here for them. It's in great condition and, and they can thrive. And that's the part that, that I love to see is when the birds show up, everything is is ready for them.
4: gallette calls it pop-up habitat.
0: It's a really incredible feeling to put this habitat out there in what was an agricultural field, maybe just a month before, and then just have them appear.
4: It's almost like an Airbnb for nature. It's not going to work everywhere. Like, if a creature needs old trees, you can't order them up week by week. But it is a concrete example of how big data can be harnessed for conservation, especially for the difficult problem of helping migratory species in a changing climate. Take another example. The Canada warbler, a little bird with a yellow throat and belly. It weighs about as much as a AAA battery. It can be spotted this time of year from Nova Scotia to northern BC. By the time it arrives in the spring, it's already flown some 5,000 kilometers from, say, Colombia or Venezuela.
0: Which is just astounding. And to me, it's like mind-boggling that this can even happen. For me, from those migratory bird species, that is really one of my favorites.
4: Richard Schuster, the scientist you just heard, has thought a lot about those epic journeys. He's mapped them for the Canada warbler and more than 100 other migratory birds with a precision that never used to be possible.
0: Like For me, uh, what's really exciting about this is we never had even imagined that we could answer or like ask those questions because we never thought we had the data for it.
4: That data isn't coming from trained scientists. It's from an army of volunteers on two continents. Those birders, with eyes and ears and apps, logging who shows up week by week. All those observations go into an online database called eBird, run by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Remember that farmer in California? That's how they know when to flood his fields. Schuster now works on spatial planning for the Nature Conservancy of Canada, and says this opens up possibilities that Muddy Boots ecology could not pull off.
0: If I just think about trying to get the funding, send so many people out to to make those observations, that's just really nothing we could have ever done from the science side.
4: A key question. For species at risk that span these thousands of kilometers, where do you focus limited conservation efforts to do the most? Back to that yellow Canada warbler. Its habitat has also been disappearing, not from sushi rice, but coffee plantations.
5: The, the decline of this species was quite severe, so most forest is gone, and the landscape is highly fragmented.
4: That's Anna Gonzalez, a postdoctoral fellow with Environment and Climate Change Canada. She's from Colombia and has studied what the Canada Warbler needs in the Andes, where it winters. Like a host of other songbirds, Canadians enjoy up north. This warbler depends on forests at a certain elevation down south. The same elevation where people grow coffee.
2: They depend
5: on forests. They can't live in open habitats. The highest uh, diversity of these species and highest abundance overlap with these um, elevation belts where coffee is grown.
4: Coffee isn't the only problem for those threatened forests, but Gonzalez's work suggests it can be a slice of a solution. Most coffee today is grown in full sun to yield more beans. But that only started in the 70s. Grow it in the shade, under trees, and the birds have somewhere to live.
5: The good news is that um, by consuming shade-grown coffee, we have the power to help these species and to help forests in the tropics and to make a difference.
4: That, along with other attempts to put some forests back in the Andes, seemed to be paying off after decades of decline the outlook for the Canada Warbler was upgraded late last year, from threatened to a species of concern. It shows there's some power in paying close attention to what exactly creatures need and where, as long as we are also willing to make room.
5: Paper or plastic?
4: Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions,
2: subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. So data monitoring alone isn't enough without action. Rachel Buxton believes technology can cut costs, and then those savings can go towards saving species at risk. She's a conservation biologist at Carleton University, and she listens to nature with the help of technology. Then she studies the sounds. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. So before we get into things here, I just want to play one of your recordings. Here we go. Oh, boy. So listen to that. I mean, it kind of almost just sort of relaxes me. (laughs) It sounds so beautiful. but, but, But to you, it says more than that. What can you learn about the health of an ecosystem from sound?
5: Yeah, you know, if you think about it in general, in every ecosystem on Earth, there are animals that produce and use sounds and so you know by recording those sounds you're actually picking up a lot of information um about different species that are in an area and about what they're doing you know some animals have uh sounds that have different contexts. So they might signal danger or they might signal uh, courtship or mating or um, protecting their young. Just by recording these sounds, uh, it gives us a really good idea of how many species are in an area and potentially what those uh, different animals' behaviors are.
2: Can I ask you how you're doing this? Are you just... <laughs> I have this vision of setting up a string of microphones across the country.
5: Yeah, well, you're essentially exactly right. Yeah. Um, We go out and we put what's called passive acoustic recorders. So uh, we leave these microphones and and recording devices out for a a long period of time in many different locations and uh, leave them there to do the hard work.
2: What are the advantages then of setting up recording devices versus actually having people there on the ground getting the information?
5: well there's a few advantages um first of all you can set up these recording devices at many 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 different locations hundreds of different locations spread over wide landscapes um, that all record at the exact same time Um, so that's really powerful if you're collecting this information at the exact same time across potentially an entire continent Um, Another advantage is that you have this permanent record, so you can go back and you can, uh, you know, potentially count something else. If you were interested in birds before, maybe now you can look at insects um, or mammals. And then finally, uh, you're your disturbance on the landscape is far reduced.
2: Now, I wanted to ask you about um, something that another scientist I spoke to said. He, He said the world doesn't necessarily need more science to know what the solutions have to be when it comes to saving plants and animals. And I'm wondering what you say to that.
5: Well, you know, it's funny, as a, as a research scientist, I happen to agree, we have a lot of information about how we're impacting the natural world and um, how we're facing a biodiversity crisis. Um, but I, what I do think we need is evidence to inform solutions um, and to actually go ahead and do those solutions and figure out how effective they are. Um, But, you know, where maybe I I disagree slightly is that without the information that tells us how effective some of these conservation solutions are, we risk doing something that's either having no effect or, you know, worst case scenario, it's actually making things worse. So although I totally agree, you know, we know that things are really dire. Um, We don't need to know any more about how dire they are what we do need is information to tell us how effective these different methods of conservation are
2: and and technology you you think is part of the the answer in that respect as well
5: absolutely you know these these recording devices they're really cheap and so we can put more of these devices out there and answer these questions about conservation solutions Um, at a very low cost, allowing us to spend more money on actual actions.
2: Recently, you published work on taking action on biodiversity and Indigenous knowledge was part of that. I wanted to ask you how that fits into research and conservation here in Canada.
5: Yeah, I think, you know, it's a really essential part of research and um, conservation, especially in, in both Canada, but really around the world. Um, you know, Indigenous ways of knowing are are so different than Western ways of knowing. And for far too long, we've really relied on Western science and Western ways of knowing. So... I think respecting Indigenous ways of knowing as research and and science in and of themselves is sort of a first step. And, you know, really interweaving our different ways of knowing to solve problems that we're both facing.
2: Could you tell us about uh, the project in California that's studying prescribed burning?
5: Sure. Yeah. So this was a a project um, during my my postdoc where I worked in collaboration with the National Park Service in the United States. Um, And the Sequoia Kings Canyon National Park have uh, attempted different types of prescribed burns. And this is a really good example where acoustic recording can come in as a really affordable method. So across this enormous park, where they've tried these different burning strategies. You can put out these acoustic recorders and over time and look at how bird communities bounce back after a major forest fire in different types of prescribed burns.
2: And have you got the answer to that yet? Is the sound <laughs> telling you how the burns are affecting the biodiversity?
5: You know, we don't know the uh, prescribed burn that has the most effective results, but we do know that bird communities in areas with prescribed burns fare much better and bounce back much quicker than those without prescribed burns.
2: Interesting. Um, I just have to say that to some people that word biodiversity might might sound um, up there, airy-fairy, academic. (laughs) Why, Why does it matter, not just for nature, but for humans?
5: yeah well, biodiversity really describes nature from the level of of the gene to the ecosystem. But really, the important part of biodiversity to, to consider is that uh, humans really rely on the services that a functional set of biodiversity produces. So everything from the food we eat um, is provided by plants and animals. um, That's part of biodiversity. To the air we breathe, you know, the way that ecosystems function produces the oxygen that we breathe, um, all the way to things like flood control, um, climate regulation, even cultural services, you know, the more species that are in an area, there's a lot of evidence that that's actually really good for our health. Um, so nature or biodiversity really provides us with a range of different benefits.
2: All right. Well, I, I promise you next time I go out for, for a hike, I'm going to be looking out for the microphones and, and the, and the <laughs> wildlife. Thank you so much for talking to me.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Now, as you just heard, respecting Indigenous knowledge is key to conservation today, and our next guest has studied the benefits of letting Indigenous peoples lead the way.
1: So my name is Nick Rio. I'm a citizen of the Sault Ste. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians. I'm a Anishinaabe, currently an Associate Professor of Indigenous Environmental Studies at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire.
2: Rio co-authored a key study in 2019. It found Indigenous managed lands in Canada, Australia and Brazil are as good or better at preserving and promoting species diversity than government-protected areas. Hello.
1: Hello. How are you?
2: I'm fine, thank you. Um, Now, I mentioned the study that you were part of um, about how Indigenous managed areas have the same or greater biodiversity than protected areas. There's a trend in science to test and validate Indigenous practices, and I'm wondering what you make of that.
1: Um, I think that the tendency to feel like that needs to be tested scientifically is, uh, it's it's unfortunate. There's there's always a need to be observant of one's own practices and maybe even the practices of our neighbors. But it it can often lead to what I would describe as sort of obvious answers, you know, like, yeah, we could have told you that type of a a situation. Um, It's not that that research process was a waste of time because it certainly wasn't. But I think that we can spin our wheels having to try to document for other people's benefit how well or not uh, Indigenous stewardship practices are working.
2: So so what's the better way then? What's the better route? It's,
1: it is important for all land stewards and managers to be paying attention to what they're doing and to fine-tune their approaches at all times. So it's not that Indigenous practitioners have it all figured out. and They don't need to pay attention. They just do. Um, I think what can be unhealthy is when the scientific community And non-Indigenous land managers will only consider listening to or trusting Indigenous practitioners if their works have been validated through a scientific assessment.
2: Now, we're talking about the biodiversity crisis, and that's something that you connect with colonialism. In in Canada, people are still reeling from the discovery of a grave outside a former residential school where the remains of 215 Indigenous children have been discovered. So I'm wondering if you can draw that through line for me. How does the biodiversity crisis connect with these kinds of horrible legacies?
1: Sure. I mean, I don't mean to in any way make a direct comparison or equilibrate these two topics um, because they're not the same. However, in both cases, when we're talking about residential schools and we're talking about climate change, I tend to see a denial of the roles of the ongoing structures of settler colonialism that continue to oppress, erase, relocate, suffocate indigenous peoples individuals and institutions tend to reduce the residential schools down to like an unfortunate moment. You'll hear things like, oh, it's so sad. It's so unfortunate that that happened. And when we do that, we're unknowingly contributing to the ongoing erasure of indigenous peoples because our history with the residential schools isn't over. You know, we have relatives who are survivors that are still around and still dealing with that. Their offspring you know, and their grandchildren are still dealing with the fallout of that attempted cultural genocide. And the same thing happens in climate change discourse. You know, we talk about how climate change is a global phenomenon that's caused generically by overpopulation, by overconsumptiveness, the greed of big businesses. It's sort of this abstraction, but that narrative puts us all kind of in the same boat when it comes to climate change, but that doesn't account for Different historical contexts, different current social, economic, political realities. And it doesn't account for cut, cash in and run type natural resource economics. And that type of capitalism and settler colonialism are these sort of twins. They go together hand in hand and they, they have a lot to do with our current climate crisis, but we don't recognize that. And so by saying that we're all in the same boat and saying that it's just this thing that just sort of generically has happened that we now all need to deal with as a collective, I, I just see I see similarities.
2: I think you, you also connect it with the idea of, of federally or provincially managed or protected lands that, that also connects up with colonialism and harms done to First Nations, right? It does. Uh, there, you know, there's been a fairly
1: long history now of setting aside lands as sort of parks and protected areas. And that history has involved the removal of Indigenous peoples. So it's in, another form of erasure. We push people out. In order to quote, protect nature, whether it's intentional or not. And in the past, it's been very intentional, and I think now it's less intentional, but it's disconnecting Indigenous peoples from their homelands.
2: Tell me, what are Indigenous communities doing that the federal and provincial managers aren't doing now? So here's what people want to hear.
1: And when I say people, I mean non Indigenous scientists, land managers, policymakers. What they want to hear, you know, from a person like me are things that can be done, practices that can be changed within public lands or within conserved areas so that it works out better ecologically in the long run. It's like, how do Indigenous peoples use fire? How can we do that? How do Indigenous peoples favor certain species or look out for certain species and how can we do that? I mean, that's not really the answer that I have for you. To me, it's at a bigger ethics and sort of way of understanding people's role in the world type of a level. (laughs) And so, I I mean, I think what's worked well for indigenous practitioners and stewards over time has been making decisions that account for the past and and the present and the future, as opposed to mostly thinking about the present and maybe just the near term future. Um, Another thing that I think has worked well are forms of decision-making and laws that try to take care of collectives and individuals, but aren't focused on necessarily individuals and corporations. Decisions and laws that recognize all of life on our planet and all of, you know, so-called nature as beings with rights to be well. So decisions and laws that account for plants and animals and rivers, um, I think has worked well for Indigenous stewards, The other thing that comes to mind is acting in ways that are likely to leave the land and uh, yet to be born generations of people better off in the future than what we are today or than what the land is today. Like when I talk about thinking about the future, it's like how can we leave things in a better condition? And I don't mean, you know, how can we make sure that as middle class and upper class families that our offspring have more money? and more options in the future. I think they've got plenty of money and plenty of options. I'm talking about trying to leave the land and trying to leave communities in a better shape overall. That's what I think tends to work when Indigenous groups have taken those types of approaches to their prioritization and their their decision-making and their actions. It's led to good things ecologically, but also socially.
2: Can you give me an example of where it has worked?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that typically through Indigenous leadership, Where we've seen national laws change to recognize the rights of nature, like in places like New Zealand, we'll see how it turns out long term. But that's an example of what I'm talking about, of taking a policy action, making a decision that prioritizes more than just humans and more than just now.
2: I studied the New Zealand example when I was studying environmental law way back in the late 1980s they were making the Maori equal players in deciding what was being done with the land there. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about?
1: Um, Well, I mean, I think that that is important. Uh, When we work on policies about the environment, those policies have direct implications for Indigenous well-being, and they have direct implications on Indigenous collectives. And so those collectives need to be involved. In writing those policies. You know, in the, in the US, what we do is we, we call that consultation, and it's kind of a box checking exercise for the most part. So it's not a, a thorough engagement with the priorities and the knowledges of Indigenous actors, but that's what it should be. You know, in New Zealand, uh, Maori are, are much more involved in day to day decision making at the national level, but also their rights are much more thoroughly considered in policy making. I think seeing more of that at a global scale uh, would be a a big
2: plus. I'm not sure if you can answer this. I know that you are actually doing some work um, with New Zealand right now, but if you can, what is the outcome of that? Does it reflect in things like the richness of the biodiversity, in preserving land, in the holistic way that you're talking about?
1: What it leads to is that policies having less deleterious Impacts on indigenous nations and lands. It's basically trying to stop policymakers from inadvertently hurting indigenous nations and indigenous homelands. To me, it's not about for everybody, you know, and and hopefully that it does benefit everybody, but it's really about stopping this practice of ignoring uh, lives and well being and, you know, trying to make sure that our policies make space for indigenous groups and collectives to set their own course you know to make decisions that they think are going to work out best for them and for their homelands long term so giving them that decision space within that national policy framework I mean that's the benefit that I see
2: Nicholas Rio thank you so much for your time it's been a great conversation okay you're, you're most welcome it's good to talk to you today That's it for us this week and if you like what you're hearing on the podcast, give us a review, tell a friend. And thanks to the team, Associate Producers Serena Renner and Jennifer Van Evra, Producer Lisa Johnson. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our Senior Producer is Manisha Janakaram with help this week from Molly Siegel. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.